it's a life-changing experience. The first time you're you're sitting there, just cross-legged, and they started the parabola, and it just started floating, and I didn't move. It was crazy. It almost feels like you're swimming. The thing I had to do most as a coach was make sure people, as soon as they went weightless for the first time, didn't try to swim, which is what everybody wants to do. It's the only sense your body can make of it. It's like, oh, I should try to swim. This is Up in the Air, a show about travel adventures, frequent flying, and the unique experiences we have along the way. I'm Ian Agrimis, and in this episode, you'll hear from Jason Divinier about floating in zero gravity, traveling the world by rocket ship, and how he landed his dream job building spaceships in the California desert. I know we're in the midst of a global pandemic, but according to my guest today, we're on the eve of a travel revolution. Just hear me out. A half dozen or so companies have spent the last decade, and some much longer than that, developing technology that will make it possible to become an astronaut without being a decorated pilot, physicist, and one of the smartest people on the planet. I know there have been musings about commercial spaceflight being right around the corner for years, but I have good reason to believe it's finally time to get excited. Jason Divinier worked for Scaled Composites, the company that built Virgin Galactic's Spaceship 2 that will fly Sir Richard Branson to space in early 2021. Of course, tickets are a little pricey at the moment, but they could be somewhat affordable in the next few decades. Until you can buy your own ticket, a career in commercial space travel might be the best way to taste the wonder that is zero-G and all the crazy things that come with it. Jason started his career in a completely unrelated industry, but had been drawn to aerospace from a young age and after a relentless pursuit of a position, finally got his start in the commercial space industry. I spent about two years actually applying to Scaled specifically because Scaled at the time, they had just won the Ansari X Prize in 2004 with Spaceship One. And then Virgin Galactic was born because Richard Branson's desire to upscale Spaceship One into a uh, spaceship that was capable of bringing, at the time, they wanted six or eight people uh, to go into suborbital space. And Scaled was tasked with designing it, building it, and testing it. So that's that's where I wanted to be. It was in the middle of nowhere, the Mojave Desert, up north of uh, Los Angeles. I actually quit my job at Discovery and flew out to Mojave, and I stayed there. And I was not going to leave until someone was going to interview me. And mm-hmm. I was a real pain in the butt. I kept emailing the CEO, and I was hanging out at the restaurant that everybody eats lunch at. And after about a week, they finally agreed to interview me. And the next day, I actually got a an offer to be a liaison engineer at Scaled, working on Virgin Galactic's program, Super which cool. I immediately took. And then a week later, I moved to California from Chicago and uh, spent the next five years doing that. Wow. I've heard that story a couple of times. I think that if you really are super passionate about something and you believe in it, that if you if you kind of don't take no for an answer, I feel like a lot of people end up getting an offer or getting at least the attention. Yes, you can definitely wear down most people. <laughs> <laughs> because because um, I imagine it's a it's a very competitive job market. You know, it is and it isn't. It's a really cool project, but to do it, you have to be willing to move kind of to the middle of nowhere. So mm. if you've got a family, that may or may not work for you. If you've got kids in school, you're probably not going to uproot them. Or if your spouse has a job in a specific place, it's not going to work. So I, I was single at the time and I was able to do it. 
But that's the direction I've taken in my life is I I don't take no for an answer. And usually it works out okay. If you're passionate about something, people will see that passion and they'll give you a chance at least to prove yourself. And that was really important here because I got a job as an engineer, but I don't have an engineering degree. Now, I did study physics Mm -hmm. and I am a pilot. So you put those two things together and I can probably figure it out. And Scaled was a company that that gave me that opportunity, which I thought was really cool. They have about, at the time, they had about 140 engineers and I was the only one that did not have an engineering degree. (laughs) So what role did you or do you play in helping develop Spaceship Two? So Scaled was developing Spaceship Two and Virgin Galactic was just down the street along with the Spaceship Company, which was a subsidiary of Virgin Galactic. And so TSC had a bunch of engineers down the street who kept coming over to Scaled and, and bugging the Scaled engineers about, you know, why, how does this system work? Why are landing gear built this way? How does the thermal protection work on this part of the tail? Mm-hmm. And none of the Scaled engineers could get their jobs done. So they hired me to kind of play interference there mm. and be the, the, the liaison to the company, the technical liaison. So yeah. everyone would come to me you know, they've, they're all assigned their own specific subsystem. They, they have to know everything they can about the feather mechanism. So they'd mm. come to me and ask me all these questions. And then I would have to either, you know, figure it out on my own based on documentation or go talk to the, uh, the engineer in charge of that system at scaled and then relay back the information. So I did that for a few years and I actually ended up learning a lot about the entire, uh, system, both yeah, white Mag 2, which is the, the mothership and spaceship two and rocket motor two. So I kind of became, I'm not going to say a subject matter expert in everything there, but I knew a lot more than the average engineer on the program. It was, it was a really neat role and I really, I really enjoyed it. Do you ever think how crazy it is that you're working on a spaceship? Like what sparked sparked your interest in space? Was there a specific event or person or company? Ever since I was a kid, I, I was building model rockets with my dad and we were launching them at my like at the soccer field at my school. And I, I fell in love with that. And then my parents saw that passion and they actually sent me to space camp three times. Mm, okay. <laughs> and that was a lot of fun. I got to go to the one in Huntsville and I got to go to the one in Florida twice. At one point I met Sally Ride, not personally, but I mean, she was in front of us giving us a talk and I, I thought that was so cool. And it was outside and it was also on a day where the space shuttle was launching and we were in Orlando. So oh, wow. we could see it all the way from Orlando, the space shuttle taking off, Sally rides talking. And I'm like, this is just so cool. Yeah. And you know, life got in the way. Captures and I, your I, imagination. Yeah. I forgot about some of that passion in college. And so I focused on other things, but eventually I got back to it because I just wanted a job that's fun at the end of the day. And I didn't care so much about money which is good if you're going to live in the middle of the desert. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a lot to spend money on, so you don't need too much. <laughs> what is out there? I mean, I'm assuming pretty much everything out there is there solely because of the... Is it a spaceport officially that's out there? Yeah, yeah. Mojave is an official spaceport. It's uh, it's where Spaceship 2... Or sorry, Spaceship 1 took off in 2004. One wow. and Sorry, there's not a lot of spaceports out there. I mean, there's New Mexico as well that Virgin Galactic is going to launch out of when they do... Uh, commercial service. I mean, what makes it a a spaceport um, other than the fact that I suppose spaceships can take off from there, but really it's just like a long runway and a couple hangars, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a technically a designation with the FAA. Ah, okay. Um, on, so that's on aeronautical of... charts, you're going to see a little rocket ship next to Mojave if you look oh. it up, uh, which is which is kind of cool. But you yeah. need to be in the middle of nowhere because obviously things mishaps can happen, and you want to be over a, a 
area that's not densely populated so that yeah, if you course. do have a, a failure of some kind, you don't harm the public. Yeah. Well, obviously sending people to space is kind of the primary mission of these rocket companies, but I know SpaceX, you know, they have proposed this um, interplanetary, actually, is that I'm not sure if this is the right use of that word, but a system basically where people would use rockets to travel within Earth. Um, and so would people be departing from a spaceport for that? Because then I, I'm trying to think like, that's the main mission of that is to save t- travel time. But then you're like outside way away from cities if you land at these spaceports. To answer that question, let me back up. Let's go over real quick in case listeners don't know what suborbital space is. And then from there, I'm going to answer your question. So when you're going to space, you either are going so fast that you're in orbit, you're you're falling literally around the world. You're going so fast in a horizontal motion. That mm-hmm. Gravity, which is fully in effect 400 miles up in space, mm-hmm. is pulling you towards the ground, but you're going so fast to the side that you just fall around the earth. The earth yeah. curves away as fast as you're falling. And that's why yeah. you're in orbit. And that's why you're you're constantly in free fall, which is why you're weightless up there. A lot of people think that there's no gravity in space, but there there is uh, almost just as much. Uh, you're just going very quickly. Suborbital space is a bit different. So the international countries got together and decided that space starts at what's called the Kármán line. And that is an invisible line 100 kilometers above the uh, Earth's surface. So 62 miles? Or, or 60, 62 miles, correct. And anybody who goes above that is considered an astronaut. Okay. Now in the U.S., for some reason, because we, we want to be different, we've decided that that is 50 miles. So lower, it's a lower boundary than the rest of the world. So if you go 51 miles, you're technically an astronaut according to the United States, but you oh. are not recognized as an astronaut in other countries. So it's kind of hmm. a... A weird thing. I don't know why they decided to do that, but with what that does said, it look like to be recognized as an astronaut? I think you could astronaut pin an astronaut pin from the uh, from NASA. Okay, but in other countries, like if they're not recognizing you, that just means they don't hold a press conference whenever you come to the country or something like that. Yeah, you don't you don't get the ticker tape parade, basically. Okay, Spaceship Two, and you know Blue Origin's doing something similar, but I I have experience with with Spaceship Two, so that's what I'm going to discuss is a a two-part rocket system. And what it is, is it's a spaceship that's hung below another aircraft that's called White Knight 2. So you've got a a dual-boomed aircraft connected by one really long wing, 145-foot wing. And in the center, the absolute center of gravity of that aircraft hangs Spaceship 2. So White Knight 2 flies up to 40, 45,000 feet and lets Spaceship 2 go at which point a rocket motor will ignite and take Spaceship Two all the way up as high as it can go, which is definitely over 50 miles, but hopefully over 62 miles. Mm -hmm. And we do that because the majority of the fuel you use when you go to space is used in the first few miles uh, when you leave the atmosphere because that's where all the thick air is. And if you can get past that thick air, then you don't need as much fuel. And if you don't need mm. as much fuel, you don't need as big of tanks. And if you don't need this big of tanks, you don't need as much structure. Mm-hmm. And everything can kind of get smaller. And that's why this works for Spaceship too, because we don't need this massive thing. We can have a pretty small spacecraft, relatively speaking, 
and still achieve the desired objective, which is to get up into space. So it's kind of a neat way to launch things. Um, Blue Origin does it differently. They take off vertically and they've got to take all that extra fuel to go through that atmosphere in the beginning that Spaceship Two doesn't have to worry about. But they also have to keep enough to, to go back and land. They, they use a reusable booster, um, which is oh, pretty sure. cool. So Scaled's philosophy was make it work on a runway and then you can just do it anywhere in the world. And that's true so long as it's a designated spaceport. Now, you go up, the rocket motor ignites, and, and you're, you're up, and you've got a pretty fast trajectory. I think you're going about, let's say, Mach 3. And then you just start coasting, but your nose is pointing straight up. So you're, you're not mm-hmm. going over the ground anywhere. You're, you're staying over the same point on the ground, but you're going up. And so as soon as that rocket motor turns off, you are going to feel weightless because you are technically in free fall, even though you're going up. So oh, yeah, it sure. takes, a, you're, you're probably going to get three, four, maybe five minutes of weightlessness. So you're going to go up until you have no more vertical velocity and then you're going to start coming back down and your body won't feel when you're going up and, and then starting to come back down it's just weightlessness to you but mm-hmm. at that point you're looking out the window you're seeing the the curvature of the earth and the blackness of space and and hopefully it's a you know a life-changing experience for you i think uh, the astronauts that go up call it the overview effect when they're able to mm-hmm. see the whole earth from from a distance and yeah. when you're doing suborbital you're not seeing it from as far away but you're certainly seeing fact that you're on a round planet and right right we're, we're all in this together at least that's what they hope so it's only a few minutes a, a space trip with with virgin would only be a few minutes yeah the same, would, the same would be true with with blue origin when you're going suborbital you're you're just kind of trying to get past that carbon line and what's really neat about spaceship two is that it can reconfigure itself it changes shape morphs it folds itself kind of in half, like a pancake. You come down and then around, say, 40,000 feet, the ship folds itself back into a straight airplane, effectively, what it was when it took off, and can glide to a runway and you land just like an airplane. And it's very familiar. It's a familiar feeling for passengers Mm -hmm. uh, to do it that way versus coming down in a parachute or or whatever other method of reentry you want to have. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pretty neat. And what's also neat, um, Virgin spent a lot of time on the interior of the cabin and they've got seats that are articulating and, and they, they do it automatically. So, um, it's very comfortable for the passenger because they can reorient the seats so that you're always feeling the gravity, the most gravity from your chest to your back mm. versus your head to your toe. If you're feeling it from your head to your toe, you can black out pretty easily. But if you're feeling it from your chest to your back, uh, it's it's pretty tolerable. So that way, more mm. people can go on Spaceship Two and experience this. Perhaps people with underlying medical conditions that might not be able to take six or seven Gs. Yeah. Normally, it's much more tolerable when you take it um, from your chest to your back. I spent time over in Pennsylvania. There's this really cool place called NASTAR, and it's a centrifuge. And so you can go there to train for high G environments, whether you're a fighter pilot or an astronaut or whatever. I spent a couple of days there and went through all the, the scenarios and the simulations of, you know, this is what it feels like to reenter on a Soyuz capsule. This is what it feels like to take oh, off on wow. a space shuttle. This is, and we ran the simulations for what it would feel like to be on spaceship too. And it was much, much more comfortable 
um, nice. because we were able to change the seats. So they're they're sitting straight up for for launch, and then while you're floating in space, they'll they'll kind of lay back down flat. So you're almost in a lie flat seat on reentry. Okay, that was a really long way to get to point to point systems. So. Just really quickly, how, how quickly can the spaceship to be reused? That's a good question. So the rocket motor in it is kind of a cartridge. You can pop it out and put a new one in. While the goal is to eventually you know, do it once a day with a spaceship, I don't think that they're going to be there anytime soon, simply because safety is paramount. And what's the rush? Like, why not take a month to look it over? Sure. And I don't think anybody would argue with that. So right. they want to have a bunch of spaceships. And maybe if they have a fleet of 10 spaceships, they could do 10 launches a month. So now, how does the point-to-point model work? Hmm, funny you finally bring that up for the first time. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the thinking is, all right, before I said when you go to suborbital journey, you're going straight up over the same point on the ground. Well, what if you just kind of pointed yourself 45 degrees west, and then you lit your rocket motor and went, how far could you go? Well, the answer is not that far, but the thinking is if you could go a little bit faster and a little bit higher, then you could go pretty far. Because if you're in orbit, you could go anywhere on Earth from anywhere else on Earth in 45 minutes. Because we know it takes 90 minutes to do an orbit of the Earth. You're flying at 17,500 miles an hour. So anywhere, any one point to another is at most 45 minutes away. But that requires you to get into orbit. Sure, which is getting expensive. into orbit is hard. Like you said, you're going seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour. But on Spaceship Two, you're going two thousand twenty five hundred miles an hour. So you have to go a lot faster to make point to point a possibility. And I think that's how like ICBMs work. They get up into suborbit or into an orbital speed, and then they can just deorbit when they're at the place they want to be and, and go do whatever they're going to do. So wow. the thinking is the same for passengers. Now, will that be a reality anytime soon? No, I don't think so. Because it's very expensive to make these rocket motors. Um, you would need a burn for a lot longer than 60 seconds, which is currently what the rocket motor will burn to get you up to space. Mm-hmm. And to do that, if you're going to go faster, you need more structure. You need more, more thermal protection. You need bigger tanks. So you have to really upsize the spacecraft. and then. Now you're basically getting into the cost of launching to space, but only for a journey that's 45 minutes long. Uh So what people want to do is make like Virgin Galactic just announced Mach 3, a Mach 3 design and other, other companies like Boom in Colorado, they're all trying to make supersonic aircraft. And I think that's going to be the next thing. Boom Uh, is the the business jet, right? It's like a supersonic business jet. That's, I mean, we should have supersonic jets right now. It's sad that we don't. We don't, not because the technology is not there, but it's because of politics. Right. I mean, Concord existed 20, 20 years ago. Concord was great. Uh, it just was. What are the big because, knocks on Concord? Too loud, too much pollution and really expensive. Yeah, it's really expensive. But the death of it was really signed the day that the U.S. said you can't fly over U.S. land with it. Because now because you it can was only so go loud. To, now you can only go to New York. Yeah, you don't want a sonic boom. Mm-hmm. So a lot of technology has been developed, and I know by NASA at least, but probably in the private sector as well, 
on changing the shape of the nose of the aircraft to make the sonic boom less apparent and to spread mm. it out so that you don't have a sharp noise, but you have more of a, a dull thud. Okay. And if they can figure that out, I think that there's a good chance they would be able to fly over land. I mean, sonic booms aren't that big of a deal. When I was in Mojave, I heard multiple ones every day. You felt like a little rattle, but it's not not the end of the world. And as long as they're high enough, I mean, no no windows are going to break or anything. I think a lot of people are like, oh my God, they're going to break my windows. But you do feel a rattle very, though, huh? You, yeah, you do feel you do feel it in your chest, and you may like Whoa. we were we were in a kind of shoddy hangar, you know. It's just like four metal walls and a roof, and mm-hmm. it would shake the hangar. But you know, it was <laughs> okay. I always looked at it as like, oh, that's so cool. Somebody's going to speed of sound right now. Um, whereas yeah. other people are probably not uh, as optimistic about about that as me. I mean, I think I would probably be in the same boat, but I could totally see if you didn't give a shit about that and your house was getting rattled every day you would probably not be that stoked well also i mean they're not gonna they're gonna make flight paths probably that are over mostly unpopulated areas i don't think they're gonna just go supersonic right over la and sure what would a training regimen look like for people who are gonna go to space for well i i guess above the carmen line for spaceship two at least says it's three days at mojave and you got a custom fitted suit and all this stuff. Is it pretty simple or do they have to teach you a lot? I'm going to preface this by saying I left in 2017 and things may have changed since I left scaled and everything I'm talking about is just my own opinion and definitely does not represent that of, of scaled or virgin or anybody else. Got it. In terms of what you would do in the three days prior, I'm sure you'd spend a lot of time going over safety because that is mm-hmm. the most important thing. Um, getting comfortable getting in and out of the spaceship and and mm-hmm. using the seats and kind of going over what the expectations are, <clears throat> what you're going to hear, what you're going to feel, what that vibration might be, just so everyone's comfortable because right. you've only got, you know, three, four, five minutes of weightlessness. You don't want to be worrying like, oh my gosh, that reaction control thruster just went off. Is that a bad thing? Yeah. So yeah. familiarity with the, with the aircraft or spacecraft is really probably the of those three days but i'm sure virgin will come up with something really unique and and fun and it won't just be sitting in a classroom learning about stuff when would you feel comfortable going like if tomorrow if you could go to space would you go and bring your family okay that's a good question i know the engineering of this the ship i know it's solid but with that said they've only gone to space twice so far yeah yeah and neither time was to 62 miles. So mm-hmm. would I go tomorrow? No. Would I go after a few more test flights? Yes. Okay, cool. Would yeah, I, I mean, bring my one-year-old? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, th- I mean, this is kind of a dark question, but what's the most likely uh, thing that could go wrong? A lot of thought is put into how can this spaceship fail? Mm. And... It's it's someone's job to just sit there actually and think of all of the things that could go wrong and document them and then come up with ways to make sure that they aren't possible by either putting in redundancies or uh, increasing the thickness of that spar or whatever. Mm, so interesting. Trust me when I say that teams of people look at this stuff to make it as safe as possible. You know, if if there's going to be a lot of suborbital space activity, I think. Unfortunately, at some point, something's going to happen with somebody on some spaceship. Of course. And 
it's going to be terrible. But we have to remember that we're going up into space and we're going really fast and that's hard to do. And I hope that if that ever happens, the whole concept of, of space tourism or commercial space doesn't go down the drain because of, of one accident. Obviously we've seen, you know, two out of our five space shuttles have had fatal accidents, but we mm -hmm. still keep going to space. Right. So I think everyone just needs to do everything they can to ensure safety is paramount. And, and then, um, and I trust in the engineering and trust that uh, this team of competent people are doing their jobs and doing their checks and, and doing everything possible. And the pilots are training and, and uh, simulators constantly, and hopefully we'll be good. So we went over the experience a little bit before, like you said, it'll, it'll be three, four minutes. I was actually surprised to learn that. I expected it would be a little longer, but um, I want to do the uh, explain that gram now because... I know on Earth, there's one other way you can have a zero G experience with a parabolic flight. And I saw that you did that. And uh, I saw a video from your zero G flight experience and it looked like a crazy party. I want to hear about your experience doing the zero G flight. Oh, yeah. So I've, I've actually been fortunate to do it <clears throat> multiple times. So back when I was... Bastard. I, <laughs> so before when we were talking about like wearing people down and not taking no for an answer... Back in 2006, I approached uh, the company, the company Zero G, and I was like, I want to be a coach on your Zero G aircraft. They, they were flying a 727 that was modified uh, for Zero G flight. And when Damn, I say modified, that's a smart angle. Uh, when I say modified, you there aren't many planes that are capable of flying Zero G because planes require gravity to push fuel from the tanks into the engines. Oh, and uh, okay. uh, you can do parabolic flight once you've got a pressurized fuel system. So that's pretty cool. Anyway. Okay. After you know, a year and a half of bugging them, I even went, I even flew to Vegas where they were headquartered when I heard <laughs> they were having a training event for their new employees. And I literally showed up and I was like, I want to go through the training in case you ever hire me. They actually let me go sit, sit through the day long thing. And oh then, my gosh, uh, that's amazing. And eventually I did get hired to go be a coach on flights out of Washington, DC. I was at Georgetown at the time um, working on pre-med stuff. Wow. And so I got to fly a couple times with them, which was amazing. And it is, it's a life-changing experience. The first time you're, you're sitting there, I, I was sitting just cross-legged and they started the parabola and it just started floating and I didn't move. <sighs> and it was just like, it was crazy. It, it almost feels like you're swimming, which is why most people, it, one of the, the thing I had to do most as a coach was <laughs> make sure people as soon as they went weightless for the first time, didn't try to swim, which is what everybody wants to do. It's the only thing yeah. your body, it's the only sense your body can make of it. It's like, oh, I must be <laughs> in water. I should try to swim. Oh, that's I'm so gonna funny. Kick, I'm going to kick my legs, which inadvertently just means you're going to kick someone else in the nose. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we, you know, we try to keep that from happening, but you can do fun experiments. Like, um, like I'd take a little water balloon and pop it with a pin and then the water would just stay in a ball. Oh and, yeah, that's that, crazy. That's that's fun, or you know, like eating M and M's, stuff like that. Stuff that doesn't get too messy, but you also only have twenty five to thirty seconds per parabola. Oh, so right. When you're flying down and you're starting to pull up, so that you would hit that twenty four thousand foot limit on the bottom, uh -huh. you're in the aircraft. You're feeling two G's, so everybody's laying down at that point, so that yeah. they can take those G's chest to back rather yeah. than sitting up in a seat, which uh -huh. would be head to toe, which would be uncomfortable. Uh -huh. So everyone's laying down. So. The, at the point you're, you're halfway between, so you're about 30,000 feet, 
the pilot, instead of pulling up on the stick, is going to start pushing the stick over. And at that point, he's going to push it over. He's got accelerometers up in the cockpit that are measuring the Gs, both in the back of the plane, the middle of the plane, and the front of the plane. He's going to push until he sees zero G. And at that point, everybody in the back is going to start floating up. If he pushes too hard, everyone's just going to hit the ceiling. So it's it's really difficult to fly this flight this flight profile. So you got to you got to practice quite a bit. Interesting. So everybody, you know, and, and if he accelerates weird, then everybody starts floating, and then they all get thrown to the back of the plane. <laughs> it's it's oh, really yeah, right. uh, it's a, it's a really fragile thing, and you have to you have to be really good. So there's not a lot of pilots that can do this very well. But Interesting. as soon as he starts that pushover, you have weightlessness for about 25 or 30 seconds, and then we call out, you know, that we're we're going to go back into the two G phase, and everybody kind of puts their feet in the down position so that when gravity comes back on, they can stand up and quickly lay down, and then they're two G again for about. 45 seconds and then three, uh, and they're zero G for another 30 seconds. So you should do about five of those in a row. Then we turn around because we're at the end of the flight corridor and do it back. And you can also vary, like I was saying before, how far he pushes forward. So the first few parabolas, they typically do, um, are like a Martian gravity. So that'd be one okay. third of the gravity on the, on, uh, of the earth. And so you can start doing like push-ups pretty easily, and it's a good way to get acclimated to the lower gravity. And then the next parabola, they may do um, lunar gravity at one sixth, and by okay. then you're like doing a one-handed push-up <laughs> and feeling pretty good about yourself. And then the next one, the next one, they'll work you into zero g. So, so I did that. I think the video you saw, I was flying last year out of. I saw, the one I saw was from March twenty fifth, twenty nineteen. That helps you. Yeah. So so I flew with. Uh, couple friends with uh, uh one of my friends and amanda cerny who's uh, yeah a friend of mine and we all went to germany actually to take part in this thing where they wanted to do a, a club in the sky and it was a promo event that's exactly what it looked like for people yeah. you should go check out the video because it's exactly yeah. what it looks like it's it, a zero it was g a club event for this like giant couple hundred thousand people party that they put on in Europe and they they line the aircraft with all these you know like computerized lights and they put a DJ booth at the end and you know it's really hard to do that because you have to strap this stuff down you're you're in 2G you're in 0G like yeah. you got to make sure that it's safe and that none of these lights are going to dislodge and go smack somebody so they did a really good job of outfitting this plane to make it like a party atmosphere they put in you know big speakers and stuff and mm -hmm. we got to go up. We flew over to France because for some reason they, they made us take off, take off and land in France for liability reasons. Huh. And this okay. is much wider than the 727 I had been in. So the volume the of the cabin is, yeah, the volume is much bigger. So it's, it's one of those planes where you've got a couple seats and then a, a, an aisle, and then a couple seats and then an aisle and a couple uh -huh. seats. Oh. So yeah, a lot you've of got much more room to fly around and play. And we were doing weird things. Like they brought, there was, uh, a really big soccer star. I don't remember what country he was from, but uh, they they set up a, a soccer goal in the back, and he brought his trophy, and they brought some <laughs> soccer balls, and he was kicking he was kicking soccer balls into it in zero g because he wanted to have like a zero g soccer match, and then eventually he was using Amanda as the soccer ball, and they were like kicking her around <laughs> into it, which was fun, and <laughs> it was it was just a neat experience. I mean, there was a, a another DJ there who plays it trombone and he was like playing trombone in zero g and and it was, what was neat is just people from all over the world 
uh, so, you know, n- not everyone spoke the same language, but when we were up there and we were floating in CRG, it didn't matter. We were just all having fun with, yeah. with the music. And uh, it, was a, it was a crazy flight. It was a neat application of zero G. And I'm, I'm really fortunate that I was able to be a part of it. Well, kind of just speaking to that point, like that, not although you didn't all speak the same language, just all having that shared experience, that shared unique experience really kind of bonded you. And I, I, I'm curious what you, I mean, we, we know the, the impact of the travel has on the world, you know, is generally quite positive. People going from country to country, mixing cultures, uh, is generally quite a good thing, but I'm curious what kind of effect you think we'll see when a critical mass of people can start to visit space or at least to see, you know, the curvature of the earth. How, how do you think that might start to affect people's opinions of the fragility of life and such? I really hope it does. I, I hope enough people can go and I hope it's the right people who are making the decisions about how we run our society. I, I don't think that there's been an astronaut that's come back from space and not had this overview effect that I mentioned earlier, where they're just like, hey, there are no borders. We are yeah. all on one giant spaceship hurtling through space because that's mm-hmm. what Earth is. I mean, this is right. our spaceship and we only have one. And so it blows my mind that as a society, we're just polluting so much and, and taking so much from the earth because there isn't a fallback. I mean, Elon wants to go to Mars. Mars isn't habitable right now. Could it be in a hundred years with a lot of work? Maybe, but uh, I mean, it's a, it's atmosphere is carbon dioxide. There's, there's no, uh, there's a lot of radiation that hits that planet that doesn't hit ours because we've got the protection from, from our atmosphere and from, um, it's really just this crazy miracle that we exist here. It really is. Like it, it has to be the perfect situation in so many ways and, and we have it. So I hope enough people can go to space and I hope that commercial space. Oh, I know it will be a thing because there's just so much opportunity in space, not just from a tourism perspective, but you know, I mean, everyone, it's not that hard now to make a small satellite and get it launched into space. Whereas 20 years ago, you know, for a university to make a satellite and launch it into space, you're like, okay, what donor has $300 million for us? But now yeah. you can do it. And and it's just more accessible, which is cool. And Elon is making the cost of space so much lower by using these re- uh, reusable um, boosters. Rockets, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's really mean, cool. That's that's key. I, I It's silly that we, for so long, we didn't do that. I mean, we're, we're throwing away the airplane after we fly it from LA to New York one time. Like, it just doesn't yeah. make sense. So uh, he's he's done so many great things to lower the cost of space for everybody, which is launching, you know, so many, so many startups. There are so many startups that are space companies now. And I hope that they get a foothold. And I hope that the government uh, can throw some dollars their way to help them grow. and. Speaking of the cost of space, what is a ticket uh, with at least, let's just say with Spaceship Two? What is that going to cost you? The last number I saw was two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, okay, that that's may, what I that saw as well. Changed. It may have changed. I know they haven't taken reservations in a long time. They just started taking like down payments for people who are interested. But I, they've got like six or seven hundred people on their list that that paid already, um, and I think that was like a a long list and they didn't want to make it longer. So they, they stopped taking reservations for that reason uh, until they can start actually uh, reducing the list by flying people to space. Well, obviously that number is pretty out of the budget for most people, but yeah, obviously with uh, uh, some scale there, they can bring that number down, which would be awesome. 
Yeah, but it's certainly not 90 million, which is what NASA's paying Russia for each seat on the Soyuz to get them to space. So, Holy crap, $90 million. Yeah, NASA paid $90 million for a seat this fall for somebody to go to the space station. It hasn't always been that that high. I mean, you've had space tourists go to the space station before through Space Adventures, which is a brokerage between um, Russian government and wealthy individuals. And they paid, I think, like the lower the lower bound on that would be about 20 million. And I think some people have paid over 50 million to do it. But uh, I know in this case, like Russia had to bump a cosmonaut off of the crew to, to fit in uh, an astronaut. And then they needed to put some, some stuff on there for the space station, some equipment. So that's why they got charged 90 million. But also Russia knows that they're, that gravy train is going to end soon because now that we've got, sure. Uh, we've got the crew dragon from SpaceX, which is, Flown astronauts to the space station, and yeah, then right. um, Starliner is hopefully and not back, too far which is behind. The important part. Yeah, and back, right? Starliner's not too far behind, I hope. And and now we've got a lot of viable ways to get to space, and we don't have to rely on Russia. And um, I just saw a couple days ago, Tom Cruise is basically confirmed to shoot something in space next fall. He's going to go to the International Space Station with the direct uh, the director of the Born Identity movies but they're both gonna go supposedly i would use confirmed loosely there but um <laughs> I, th- I think that's really cool um it's certainly i mean, it is unheard of to have somebody an actor go fly into space and and film a movie i i wonder how that will work logistically because uh obviously as you know to film a movie takes hundreds of people and you've got to have you know, the sound guy and the lighting guy, and the makeup person and the director and the cameraman. And like, you can't bring all those people to space. So if it's just going to be a director and Tom Cruise, a lot of pressure on that director to get all the technical things right. While Tom floats around and eats M&Ms. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, and, and obviously there's a lot of stuff going on on the space station that's important. And you can't just be like, hey, guys, hold on one sec. We're going to do a scene yeah, right now. If you guys could all just be in the back part for the rest of the day. Uh, the space station is actually very, uh, very loud as well. It's got a lot of machinery and I don't know how conducive that's going to be to recording audio in space. Yeah, uh, I learned that not so long ago and I guess I was really surprised. But when you see those astronauts doing most of their like webcasts, they're usually holding a microphone. So I guess that kind of makes sense. I mean, you've got, you got all the machines are going, so it's pretty loud. I don't know that it's totally necessary for Tom to go to do this. I think it's more publicity than anything. I mean, certainly you can load in a set on the zero G plane, which they did all the time on the 727 I, I worked on. Um, oh, really? It's a cargo. It's a cargo plane. You you palletize your set, you load it on, and then you go fly zero G. I mean, that's how they filmed all thirteen. Those guys are all in zero G planes. Oh wow! Those, I did not know sets, that. Those sets are mocked up inside an actual aircraft plummeting towards the ground at terminal velocity and the actors have 30 seconds to do their scene holy crap that's crazy i mean i guess those it makes are, sense because the hair is like floating so that's a tough thing to to do yeah, with cgi those are, and stuff. those are tough flights because you it typically do like 15 parabolas in a flight and that's the point at which most people start to feel a little nauseous yeah but on a production flight you might do 40 or 50 parabolas and the by the end everyone's like get me out of here <laughs> oh my gosh that's crazy so so it's certainly more cost effective to do it that way than than to fly a couple people to the space station because they're not just a couple people you have to have a lot of 
stuff too. You've got to have all your oh, costumes yeah. and your props and, all, and your yeah. cameras and your gear. And uh, I and think that heavy. that's going to be going to be a difficult thing. But what it'll do is it'll get people excited about space again if they're not already, and it'll it'll get the word out to more people who aren't in that space world. So I yeah. think in that sense, it's a, it's a cool thing, and I look forward to seeing it happen. Yeah, me too. I guess there's several services that offer the zero G parabolic flights, but in general, what does that cost? Not that many places actually offer that. I think in the U.S. only zero G does, and okay. I think there's like five aircraft in the world that are capable of doing it that are large enough. You know, not not someone's like private jet or something, but an actual like certified plane that can fly zero G parabolas. It's relatively inexpensive. I think for the whole experience, it might be around five thousand dollars per person yeah and if if you have five thousand dollars you should go do this because it is life-changing feeling weightlessness is something you'll never forget yeah and totally worth the money if if you can afford it i know we didn't really get into the miles and points stuff as as much as uh, actually frankly as i i expected but um how have you been uh doing with your points and miles (laughs) during this time i know you're a big points guy What's what's been changing for you? This has been such a weird period for me, uh, having a one year old now. Where if if the pandemic happened and I didn't have my son, I might have gone on a plane and just just because it's been six or seven months since I've been on one. But because sure. I have to be a responsible parent, I have abstained from going on a plane. I did rent a plane and fly myself with my son and my wife. Not far, oh, like cool. an hour, an hour and back, just so we could go get on an airplane. But it's it's been strange. What I'm kicking myself for is that I've been doing what we all say we shouldn't do, and that's hoarding all of my points and saving them up. I I typically do that because I like to do big. I, I like to spend a lot of them at once on a really cool trip, like going on Emirates first or something. Yeah. And right now, I feel like everything's going to be devalued quite a bit because the pandemic. The airlines aren't making money, so they're going to start giving, you know, a hundred thousand miles if you sign up for this credit card and stuff. And it's just going to hurt us all. So I'm, I'm concerned about the devaluation and the miles that I already have, the miles and points I already have. So I should probably try to spend those, but you can't go anywhere on any planes because pandemic. So, yeah, yeah, I know that's, that's a concern of mine as well. I'm, I've definitely been thinking I would like to just lock in some tickets at the current pricing, just book something, you know, 11 months out and then hopefully be able to change it in the future if, if I can't make that particular date work. I know I got, I got on United last night. I just started typing. I was like, we in New Zealand, we go to Bora Bora. Like, right. I don't know, February, June, when, when can I do this? And of course there's no savers or anything, even though, you know, the planes are empty, but why, why haven't they really saver inventory yet? I don't, I, I'm, I'm very tempted to do that. I've got, you know, it's just, it's hard to get away now. I've got, um, Two of my dogs are also going through cancer and I've got to do daily, like either daily chemo or daily fluids for them. So it's another reason why I just can't, I can't hop on a plane anymore. So I think I'm going to be grounded for, for a little while while things play out and then hoping to get back. Well, that uh, brings me to a question that I ask everybody here and you've heard it before, which is what impact has travel had on you and what impact do you believe it has on the world? Also, as you know about me, I travel a lot just on airplanes going to various places around the world as as a hobby and a passion to go experience new cultures and, and see things. So travel for me has really made the world a much smaller place, which 
it's kind of cool because when you're a kid, it's like, oh, the world's so big. And now that I know I can go get an airplane and go go to Australia and be there tomorrow morning, it's, it's not that big anymore. So I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity to experience so many different aspects of the world. But I think travel is going to change a lot of people's lives when we extend travel beyond just the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, at that point, I think we can make some real changes in the world and we can put the right people up in space to have them realize that everything we have here is a finite resource and we need to take care of this planet better. And if that occurs, humanity will be good moving forward because we will take steps quickly to, to change all the bad habits we have right now that are not sustainable so that we can make sure that there are humans in a thousand years, 10,000 years from now. That's Jason Divineer. You can find him on Instagram at jdivineer or out in the middle of the Mojave Desert. If you enjoyed the show or learned anything from it, it would be supremely awesome if you'd share it with someone who might find it interesting or rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Doing so helps other people find the show. As always, feel free to reach out on social with any questions or comments. Once again, I'm your host, Ian Grimace, wishing you smooth travels.